that bastard. I'm Dave Ternowski. And I did it again. I tore open the wound by asking if there was any way back to her. Of course there isn't. It's dead. It's been dead. I'm the only one keeping it on life support. Meanwhile, she had signed a DNR. What I keep doing is hurting both of us. And I've been focusing all on her. But what about me? Is it even healthy for me to have her in my life? I don't know the answer to that. Or maybe I do and I'm just in denial. Maybe it's just a matter of time. She was my best friend. That is excruciatingly hard to let go of. Especially since she's the only reason I'm in this city. And I'm all alone without her. And then I make it hard again. I know I need to resist the urge to reach out. Or the urge to make more out of it than it is when she reaches out to me. Or at least just make things about now and not the past. Or some imagined future that I have have. It needs to be about who we are now and our futures apart. But every time it's the same. A plus B equals C. Yet every time I have this false hope it'll turn out different. And texts are so easy to misinterpret. She'll say something that I will read into as her being even remotely open to getting back together and I pounce on it. I get the same reply. No. And I'll cry, and I'll slip into a deep depression, and hate myself. Keep wondering why the fuck I do this same shit over and over. All it does is drive us further apart, instead of bringing us closer. Bringing us to any kind of resolution. Part of me knows the relationship I want back doesn't exist anymore. We've both changed, and that's a great thing, just not for us as a couple. Plus, it's been nine months. I have almost no idea what's been happening in her life, how much she's changed and moved on. When I think of her now, the main image I have is her before we moved here in 2018. Not that things were perfect then, but they're never perfect in any relationship that lasts any amount of time beyond the honeymoon phase. I was happy living here in DC at first. In the end, it was just that I wanted to be happy. I wanted to hold on to the love that we had, but I also knew things weren't working anymore. I've been watching House lately that medical drama from the early 2000s. And there was a scene with one of the doctors and his wife who had been having marital problems for years. He knew it was the end. He had walked in and said, I think we need a divorce. She seemed surprised. And he asked her, do you love me? She said, yes. And he asked, are you happy? And 
said no. And I cried hard. It was far from the first time I've cried since I started rewatching about a month ago. I'd see myself in my former marriage in so many scenes between so many characters. But it hit home right where I'm living right now. And I've been able to nod my head in total agreement while sobbing and say the things I knew to be true out loud to myself. I've had so many conversations with myself over the past nine months since she and I split and I moved into my own place, my purgatory. But I've been having the first truly productive ones lately, conversations in which I truly look at things from a perspective I didn't have before. To quote House himself, everybody lies, especially to themselves. We paint a rosy picture of the past and whitewash the bad parts. I've portrayed myself as the villain in so many of the bad times. And to be sure, I was in some of them. Not so much the villain, but the one who caused problems with bad behavior. For so long since we broke up, I couldn't even hear any negative talk about her. I couldn't even talk to my parents for the first few months, because I knew they'd take my side and I didn't feel worthy of that. I didn't feel like I should have been absolved from my sins, of breaking our vows. But the breakup didn't happen solely because of me. One of the many truths is we stayed together longer than we should have. And it's precisely because we were in love that we did that. I'm not sure we really liked each other much at the end but we desperately clung to the idea that we can ultimately make it work. An idea that I've still been holding on to. And I know I'm far from alone in feeling like this. The resistance to letting go of the past. Jean, one of my followers on Instagram, wrote the other day, can you be friends with an ex? My feeling is no. I always thought that I could, and I have, every time. But over time it fades. It has to. It's unhealthy to keep someone in your life that you know you're in love with. And if you weren't in love with them, why would you keep them in your life? So I'm not sure I can keep my wife as my friend. Well, my ex-wife. I still have a hard time with that that distinction I'd like to but is that part of me that believes one day maybe that fucking maybe I mentioned Queens of the Stone Age's album Like Clockwork in a recent episode and there's one other lyric I want to quote which is from the title song Holding on too long is just the fear of letting go. Because not everything that goes around comes back around, you know. One thing that is clear, it's all downhill from here. You can never go back 
so I will hold on to the good memories and try to let go of everything else. Because at least we had those good times. As Alfred Lord Tennyson famously wrote, "'Tis better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all." You learn things from every relationship you have in life. You learn about yourself through others. But are those people meant to stay in your life? Would they were it not for texting and social media? Where regret is right at your fingertips? And I don't just mean past regrets, but the regret of reaching out in the first place. The regret of reaching back into the past. There was a submission that I received from Esther on Instagram. My ex called me randomly and apologized for messing with my head when we were together. Felt good. That's one thing with me is that I constantly feel the need to apologize. But whenever I do it, I mess with both of our heads. So I'm done apologizing. I'm done saying things that I've said over and over and over that just don't change anything. She has things to apologize for, honestly. And I've only heard a small amount of contrition from her. But as the one who blew it up, it's very easy for me to take all the blame. Plus, I'm the one who can't give up. And the stuff she is, quote unquote, to blame for is stuff I knew going into the relationship. That's an important thing to remember when you first get into a relationship. Don't ignore the things that don't sit well with you. Don't fool yourself into believing that you can change them. We both knew we were addicts when we got together. We were just addicted to different things. She was always addicted to work. And to her credit, that's why she's so successful. But I need someone who can give me more quality time. What's the point of being with someone when you only get a small percentage of their time? Unless you're someone who doesn't need as much time. That was a cause of friction for us from the beginning. But when we moved out here for her to take on a job I knew was going to take up even more of her time, I can't put that blame of my extreme loneliness and what I filled my time with to make me feel less alone on her. I knew what I was getting into. Just as she knew I was a substance abuser, an overspender, a sex addict. But what she didn't know, because I didn't know, was that I was bipolar. And addictive and risky behavior like that are hallmarks of that illness. Had I known, I could have been more cognizant of the behavior and maybe gotten it under control, at least to an extent. I responded to someone last week who asked if two bipolar or depressed people can make a relationship work. And I said I believe that they can, but I don't think two addicts can. I know a lot of recovering addicts have very healthy relationships just as active addicts can have relationships, though a bit less healthy. When I relapsed in December, 
My first thought was the shame I had for failing, not in my eyes, but in hers. I was still so codependent that I worried what she would think. I worried if she knew that it would ruin any chance of the two of us getting back together. As if that existed. Meanwhile, I had relapsed right after she had told me, for like the third or fourth time, that there was no way we were getting back together. There was zero logic to any of it. Just pure, irrational emotion. And I'd like to say I'm moving past that. But it's three months later now and I've asked her for like the fifth or sixth time. I'm tired of being that guy. Not that that's purely a guy thing. Lots of people of all genders and non-binary people have written to me about not being able to let go. It's such a human thing. We bond, and when those bonds are severed, we are no longer the same. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's all bad. Someone wrote in recently, I think you should cut the shit with your wife out. Be grateful for all the good memories, but that's all. I was offended at the time, but it was only because I saw the truth in what they were saying that I didn't want to see. It's easy for someone to say that when they're on the outside, but I need to try. It's hard when I'm still stuck in it. And I know this stuff is helpful for a lot of people. The processing of a breakup in real time, the roller coaster ride, the grief. I know better days are coming. The vaccines are starting to roll out quicker and in much larger amounts. A lot of people I love are already vaccinated. I'm planning a long weekend trip to New York either later this month or next month. Just a change of scenery will do me good. I'm just worried that it'll bring up all the memories from the past that will further torture me. Since that's where my ex and I met and spent the first five years together the happy times, and the ghosts of them will be everywhere. But I'll make new memories that will push those aside. The ghosts will fade, or I'll make better friends with them. To the person who told me to think of only the good memories, that's exactly the problem. All I think about now are the good ones. I've mostly gotten past the bad goes back to the whitewashing of the past I mentioned earlier. The good times are all I long for. But to also go back to the Tennyson quote, at least there were the good times. One day they won't hurt so much. Sam wrote in, left him, now learning how to make my own happiness a priority. This reminds me of something my aunt told me the other day that I mentioned at the top of the show. Where am I in all of this? She was the one who helped me realize that I might not be ready to keep my ex in my life. At least not for a while. It's just hard for me to focus on me while I'm stuck in a city that holds no memories for me other than her. 
but I do have days when I can focus solely on me. It's really just a matter of allowing myself to. I've had more good days than bad this week. I spiraled after the last texts with her on Sunday and felt physically ill on Monday and Tuesday, but I felt good since Wednesday. And last night I did my first live podcast on the Stereo app, which you should all download and follow me on, by the way. It was a wonderful experience and one I'll be doing every Friday night. It's far less serious than this podcast while still being fairly sad bastardy. It was me in church, my incredible producer and someone I feel has become a really good friend. And she asked me on a scale of 1 to 10 how much of a sad bastard I am at the moment. 1 being the least and 10 being the absolute saddest. And I said I was a 2. And it felt good to be able to say that and feel that. I'm sure as the days go by without contact with my ex I'll get stronger again. And when we finally get divorced things will feel more real. Really over. And I'll fall apart again. Perhaps for the last time. It's okay to not be okay. CoStar told me so. For those who don't know what CoStar is, it's an astrology app that gives you little updates like that every day and has this great compatibility section that shows you how you match up with others based on your charts. Yes, I am that girl. I'm also into tarot, but I don't go way deep down the spiritual well. I mean, okay, I do love crystals, but not like the chakra crystals or anything. I collect minerals, Murray. On Monday, the day after the last time I made the mistake of asking my wife to give us one more chance, CoStar had this to say. There's no such thing as the one. That's something I've always believed and espoused, but haven't been able to consciously follow myself lately. Much like a lot of my own advice. It also said this yesterday. Ask yourself if you're still holding on to something. It always somehow knows. It went on. Today you're letting your heart bleed all over everything. Why do you keep self-sabotaging? Notice each sensation with curiosity. Allowing it to be. Examine the uniqueness of each sensation. And that all reminds me of things I've said in previous episodes and on my Instagram stories. I did a whole episode of this podcast on self-sabotage. And yet that was only a few months into the breakup. It's funny thinking about that phrase, a few months into the breakup. Because breakups and the emotions they bring are their own kind of relationships. They are a relationship between who you are now and who you were. There's just no honeymoon phase. There are some good days, but mostly it's just pain. And I've come to realize how necessary that is. How necessary those relationships are. 
You need to make your own misery a priority. You need to sit with the pain so you can get yourself through it. I'm stronger now because of it, even if I still have my moments of weakness. And as I've said before, grief does not go away on your timeline. And sometimes you'll do things like I have to make that grief worse. You'll self-sabotage. You'll go backwards. You'll spiral. You won't be able to even think about a future without the person you were with. You'll convince yourself that they were the one. And that's okay. We each deal with breakups and grief in our own ways. None of them are unique. Billions of people have been through breakups. Just think of all of the people on the planet right now. And then think of all of the billions that have come before them. Before you. Before me. It's impossible that not one of them has been through what I'm going through right now. I mean, of course, not exactly the same, because everybody's different. And again, most of the people who ever lived never lived through the era of technology that allows for constant contact that we're in right now. Back then, they only had photos and lockets that they wore around their necks portraits they kept hanging on their walls and looked at with longing, handwritten letters filled with love that had burned out years after the words spilled out through their hearts and into the ink and onto the pages. Now it's just texts and emails. All I have to do is scroll back into the past to read back emails from my ex in which she signed off with I love you with so many exclamation points. That the love was once there is why it's so hard to let go. Why can't it last forever? Why do I have to give up on it? But like my ex said when we first decided to split and I told her I had changed my mind and didn't want to. It's not only your choice. Letting go is our choice, however. Moving on is our choice. So is changing your mind. Changing their mind, however, is not. So as I said so bravely at the end of last week's episode, recorded the day before I changed my mind and asked to go back again, I am giving up. And perhaps this will be the last time. Because I can work on making my happiness a priority as Sam says she is doing. Problem is, I don't know what my happiness is a lot of the time. And it's not even tied to sadness. I learned a new word recently, anhedonia. It means the inability to feel pleasure. And I've suffered from it a lot over the course of my life incredible how swiftly it can swoop in and sweep all joy away. It makes it difficult to do anything, sometimes impossible. And sometimes it's due to depression, but not always. Sometimes I can feel fine overall, but totally uninspired. Life can just be a drag. It's easier to ignore those moments when I'm with someone. 
they take the focus off of me. I can make their happiness a priority. But when that's gone, when they're not around, and I'm stuck with myself, it can be hard to feel complete. I can be so fucking codependent. And knowing that, recognizing it, is a good thing. But changing it is another entirely. It comes from years of behavior going back to my childhood, and it's hardwired into my brain. It's something I will need to actively work against in the future, if possible. So working on my happiness alone has to be my priority right now. And one thing that makes me happy is doing this podcast and the Instagram stories, where I receive the submissions I respond to on here. Even if it's pretty sad stuff, I feel happy helping people. Especially when I receive submissions like this one from Kit. I want you to know you saved my life tonight. Thank you. Thank you, Kit. And you are so very welcome. I'm happy and honored to have made such an impact. And it's responses like this to what I do that makes me feel confident in what I do, no matter what comes out, even if it's repetitive, even if it annoys some people even if I lose followers. If what I do helps one person, it's worth it to me. And this always helps me. Sharing my feelings, my experiences, writing it all out in these scripts. But even so, the pain never stops. I think it does, that it's gone. And then there it is again out of nowhere, overwhelming me. I understand completely why I want to go back to her, why I long to be back in this place that no longer exists. I just want the pain to end. Speaking of endings, I'd like to end this episode with a passage from one of my favorite novels, The Long Goodbye, by my absolute favorite author, Raymond Chandler. Chandler's lead character in his novels is Philip Marlowe, a quintessential hard-boiled detective who has been portrayed in movies by the likes of Humphrey Bogart and Robert Mitchum. A character so tough and jaded on the outside, but with a soft heart that belies what he projects to the world. He had just fallen in love but couldn't admit it. He wouldn't allow himself to be vulnerable. Leading up to this moment, He had spent the night bantering with, and making love with, and then bantering even more with Linda Loring, the sister-in-law of Terry Lennox, whose wife was murdered at the beginning of the novel, setting off a long chain of events that, well, would take a long novel to explain, so just read the book. Anyway, this is the ending of the penultimate chapter of the book. And I think the simple yet heartbreaking prose had the biggest influence on all of the fiction writing I've ever done, and perhaps on all of my nonfiction as well, including these scripts. 
Linda had just asked Marlo to marry her. He turned her down. I pulled her close and she cried against my shoulder. She wasn't in love with me and we both knew it. She wasn't crying over me. It was just time for her to shed a few tears. Then she pulled away and I got out of bed and she went into the bathroom to fix her face. I got the champagne. When she came back, she was smiling. I'm sorry I blubbered, she said. In six months from now, I won't even remember your name. Bring it into the living room. I want to see the lights. I did what she said. She sat on the Davenport as before. I put the champagne in front of her. She looked at the glass but didn't touch it. I'll introduce myself, I said. We'll have a drink together. Like tonight? It won't ever be like tonight again. She raised her glass of champagne, drank a little of it slowly, turned her body on the Davenport, and threw the rest in my face. Then she began to cry again. I got a handkerchief out and wiped my face off and wiped hers for her. I don't know why I did that, she said. But for God's sake, don't say I'm a woman and a woman never knows why she does anything. I poured some more champagne into her glass and laughed at her. She drank it slowly and then turned the other way and fell across my knees. I'm tired, she said. You'll have to carry me this time. After a while, she went to sleep. In the morning, she was still asleep when I got up and made coffee. I showered and shaved and dressed. She woke up then. We had breakfast together. I called a cab and carried her overnight case down the steps. We said goodbye. I watched the cab out of sight. I went back up the steps and into the bedroom and pulled the bed to pieces and remade it. There was a long dark hair on one of the pillows. There was a lump of lead at the pit of my stomach. The French have a phrase for it. The bastards have a phrase for everything, and they're always right. To say goodbye is to die a little. Well, that's all for this week. Thanks for listening. As always, please subscribe to this podcast if you don't already. And also follow my Instagram accounts, Nick Cave and the Bad Memes, Sad Peaks, Don Trooper, Mimi Bridgers, and the Sad Bastard Pod. On Nick Cave and the Bad Memes and Sad Peaks, I do Q&As almost every day. Sometimes less frequently where you can tell me what's on your mind and I might reply on a future episode and again follow the sad bastard on the stereo app where I'll be doing a live podcast every Friday night I'll be back next week I'm not saying goodbye taking me down my friend as they usher me off to my end will I bid you adieu I'll be seeing you soon What they say around here is true